think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, huge. Not- and I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the Box with Serge Negus on FBI. You can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on mornings or any other program here at FBI. Now, today on the show, I've got someone who, for the past couple of years, has become a very well-known face around the inner west of Sydney. She was manager of community arts and cultural development at the Australian Council for Arts before doing a stint with Amnesty International as a crisis coordinator, which we're definitely going to ask her about because it's definitely not one that you usually hear of. But now you'd better know her as Jenny Leong, the member for Newtown, Greens member that is. Jenny, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, look, crisis coordinator, it sounds dramatic. I'm sure it probably is very intense, but also very rewarding. So can you explain to us what exactly that role entailed? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, you hear it and you think of like the Mr. Wolf character in Pulp Fiction, but it was nothing quite as glamorous as uh, or as uh, behind the scenes as that. Basically, the crisis coordinator amnesty was an attempt to try and have sort of a reactive um, campaign coordination work around global human rights crises. So basically, mm. recognising that amnesty is a very large organisation and has really long planned out uh, campaigns to address human rights issues. But sometimes things spark up, things that are unplanned and... um there was a need for the organisation to be able to react quickly. So I was in that role in Australia and then I moved over to London and worked as the crisis um, and tactical campaign coordinator over there. And most of that time was spent working on mobilising Amnesty globally around the Middle East and North Africa uprising, but also addressed issues where if all of a sudden we heard that there was an imminent execution being faced or that there was going to be a big change in terms of some kind of global crackdown on human rights in a certain country, my role was to basically coordinate globally, Amnesty's activists and members and organisations to be able to mobilise around a particular issue that we hadn't necessarily planned was coming. And then what would you actually physically do once that that situation was, I guess, identified? It really depended on the situation. So in some cases, I found myself organising rallies outside of the UN in New York. Um, In other times, it was holding briefings for people in Canberra around the Burma elections. It really, some of it was behind the scenes advocacy. Some of it was organising big mass actions and global days of actions where people would do things in different countries around the world. But what it really was attempting to do was to recognise that there's two, there was a movement at the time where you saw a lot of the Move On and Avars and different online campaigning organisations that were doing a lot of that digital reactive work and were mm-hmm. able to respond really quickly. But what Amnesty had was sort of, if you like, a, a very established report writing, letter writing, uh, not very mobile, but very, very strong in terms of the reach that we had throughout the um, the global network of Amnesty supporters. And so this was an attempt to say, how do we actually mobilise and activate Amnesty po- supporters around the world? using digital and online tools, but actually connecting it to real-world activities and events. It's a fascinating job. I mean, how long were you doing that for? So I worked at Amnesty for about five years, and I found during that time, first of all, I was working on domestic issues, so I was campaigning for a Human Rights Act in Australia, and then over time I worked more in the crisis space and found myself working at the International Secretariat in London. It's an incredible job. Uh, Look, I mean, it's only the start of your very interesting career, that's for sure. But look, this is a music program. And I have to say, 
when I saw your song choices, it did surprise me. I've had a few politicians on this show, federal ones at that. You're the first state one, which yeah. I'm very happy about. Oh, lovely. Uh, but, but there was a couple of songs, a couple of 90s rock grunge songs that are in there, the first of which, Soundgarden, Black Hole Sun, is one of my favourite tracks. But it's definitely not a song that I'd expect a politician to bring on this show. Why did you choose this song? Well, it certainly wasn't to be anti-politician. It's actually, you know, I would have to say Soundgarden, and particularly that album, has a particularly soft spot in my heart. Uh, I had a, a year tri- uh, away from Australia travelling with who, the person who's now my partner and we got a Mercury Cougar, 67 Mercury Cougar, and drove down to Mexico. Nice. And um, the bonnet was so big that I could lay on the front and my feet and my hands wouldn't touch it it was wonderful (laughs) people won't expect that from a greens mp but i do like good old cars like that um but one of the things that we had because it was going back in the day is we had a tape recorder and one of the tapes that we had in it was this Soundgarden album and so we listened to it non-stop the whole way down and back of uh, Baja Mexico and since then I've always loved it you know and I was at that stage in my life I was a total grunge fan I remember crying on the 4th of April when Kurt Cobain died I still remember where I was and I was totally into that kind of music you know I went a bit more hardcore for a while and was into Henry Rollins and stuff but I kind of took me a bit far but yeah so Soundgarden Black Hole Sun that's you know for me that's where it's at
Drown my fear Till you all just disappear Black hole sun Won't you come Wash away the rain Black hole sun Won't you come Won't you come Black hole sun You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is state member for the electorate of Newtown, Jenny Leong. Now, cyberbullying is something that much of our audience would be very well acquainted with, and it's an issue that, I guess, as a young person, it pretty sadly has become kind of normality and it's hard to avoid. It's not something that you think of, you know, people at work or people, you know, who are older, I guess, like, would have to face, but it is something that you've faced, though. Yeah, it's it, it's an unfortunate reality for for lots of public figures and particularly women and pe- people from diverse backgrounds um, online. I think um, you you see the really dark side of of people's opinions and views on social media. I think because partly people can do it with a sense of anonymity and they can attack and and bully in a way that's really problematic. I I personally, you know, was involved in. Um, quite a high profile situation a little while ago where um, there were reports that it was actually New South Wales police involved in targeting my Facebook page um, and saying some pretty offensive racist and sexist stuff online um, about me and about my family, which is, you know, disgusting. And anyone, anyone seeing any of those reports would have seen how disgusting it was. I think the real concern with that kind of thing is that we almost put it out to this thing of like, oh, it's cyberbullying or that's what happens on the internet. You know, mm. you can expect that on Twitter or Facebook rather than actually saying what's the bigger picture about what that says about our society, that people are then feeling like they can just sort of lay into people because of their because of their race, because of their gender, you know, yeah. in, an, in a completely outrageous way. And I mean, I guess how did that whole situation I guess did it resolve, or is it still ongoing? Where is it at right now? Yeah, so so when it it became apparent from the reports um, that it appeared to be that there were New South Wales police involved, uh, I reported it uh, to the Police Integrity Commission at the time, which is supposed to be the independent body that investigates New South Wales police when there are issues about their conduct and behaviour. That investigation uh, concluded, and it's been referred back to the police professional standards to look into. It's still sort of ongoing. 
going, if you mm. like, in that sense. The the concern that I think is there, and I said it at the time when, when I was targeted, is there are so many people in the community, especially um, in diverse communities, that have very little faith in the police to be able to protect them from the kind of harassment and bullying that they they mm. face. And so the idea that we saw reports of police actually engaging in that kind of behaviour really... Um, to me, required the police minister and for the premier and others to step up and reassure people that they were going to take action more broadly, not specifically on my case, but more Mm. broadly to reassure the community. It's something that we haven't seen and it's something that we really need to see, particularly when it comes to looking at, you know, people's sense of fear around reporting incidents of sexual harassment, of um, racial discrimination, of other types of harassment and discrimination. It's an area that needs to be looked at in more detail. Police should be there to protect the community, not to be adding to the harm caused to a society. What kind of message do you think it sends that, I guess, something like that is referred back to an in-house review, you know? Like, how do, what message does that send to people? Look, it still has oversight by, um, by a new body, um, I think the question is more about the time to look into these things and how difficult it is. And, and mm. part of that also is linked to the fact that it's very, very difficult to track down the information you need to be able to investigate this stuff on Facebook because obviously Facebook has its own interests into why it doesn't necessarily want to share all of the details yeah. of people involved. The bigger question, I think, is how we as a society are investing in education and um support for people at a young age to actually realise what's acceptable and what's not in terms of what you can do online, but also how we can actually hold people to account when they do it. I mean, we see consistently on Twitter, you know, women being threatened with serious assault, um, with sexual violence, with all of these things as a, as a daily occurrence on, on Twitter. You know, my, my um, Greens colleague, Maureen Faruqi, has a love letters to Maureen page where she highlights some of the most <laughs> offensive stuff that people write to her on social wow. media. And as a That's Muslim a woman, <laughs> as a Muslim woman, you know, she, she probably gets the most um, offensive, vile things you could ever imagine. And it's just yeah. such a disgusting part of society. But it also... It's very difficult because you're you're torn between this idea of going, I don't want to let them get to me, so I'm just going to do what I do anyway, versus yeah. the idea of self-censoring because you know, oh, if I put this out there, maybe I'll risk all these people coming on and piling on and attacking me. Yeah. It's a very difficult, difficult space to negotiate. It really is, isn't it? And I mean, on a similar vein, I guess the reason why this like, happened was because of um, you questioned whether there was like a need for police sniffer dog programs because of, I guess, like there being issues with them potentially not being as, I guess, useful in picking up drug dealers or whoever it may be. Could you explain to us, because for young people, it's definitely an issue like whether or not there are sniffer dogs around because I think we're overwhelmingly and prosecuted by these things a lot more than other people would be. Why did you think it was necessary to kind of call into question, I guess, these sniffer dog programs? Look, there's a personal reason and there's also a policy reason. On a on the policy reason to start with, it's clear from independent reports um, over many years that the sniffer dog program in New South Wales just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, the drug detection dog program um, doesn't succeed in what it's trying to do. Um, if it was trying to basically just intimidate people from diverse backgrounds, young people, Aboriginal people, then it does a very good job of that. But that's not what <laughs> its job is supposed to be. The job is supposed to be um, detecting uh, drug uh, people, 
detecting drugs, basically. Mm. But it's when you look at the figures, and these are independent figures, when you look at them, the program just doesn't work. And if it was a different type of program, there is no way that it would continue to be funded. So my colleague, David Shoebridge, has been doing a lot of work on this and is evidence that there are a disproportionate targeting of places like Redfern Station, where there's a high number of young students, a high number of Aboriginal people using that station, much higher than anywhere else in the state, despite the fact that the, the success rate for when they actually detect people with drugs is much less. Mm. So we know that it's about something else other than the drug detection. On a personal level, um, my partner was actually, he's a lawyer and um, he was actually offering legal help to someone being searched by a sniffer dog many years ago in the Cooper's Arms Hotel in Newtown and the police tried to stop him from offering legal support and threw him into a pool table, basically broke his rib, took him um, to the Newtown Police Station and then uh, charged him with a number of things, at which point we then took... Um, oh. He was found not guilty uh, and that matter was then uh, resolved in the positive in that um, the police were required to compensate him for the damage that he'd caused. So on a personal mm. level... I have seen the fact that these kind of programs can be used to intimidate people. It can be used to actually have a huge disruption to people's social. Um, you mentioned music festivals, but it's such a, you know, whether if you're, anyone's been in a pub where sniffer dogs come through, it changes the vibe completely. And it's really so much more about intimidation than it is about addressing serious drug-related crime. And I mean, it's also a civil liberty issue in the sense that, like, if you're searched in a public place, like a you know train station, and you don't have anything on you, you still are perceived by those around you as being guilty potentially because the cops have got you there and they're searching you. And if the dog has sat down, even if you don't have drugs, like people just assume you're guilty, right? Absolutely. And the other part of it is going back to this idea of the intimidation. What we need is good community-focused policing. That's what we want. We want the police to be there to help protect the community from things that are going to cause them harm. And so my concern with things like having a huge sniffer dog police presence at Newtown Station, say on a Friday or Saturday night, is if you have young women arriving at Newtown Station and they see police officers dressed in really intimidating clothes with dogs in a large number, if later on that night the woman is then being sort of followed by someone that they don't want to or harassed or intimidated, how safe and comfortable do they feel then ringing the local police or going into the local police station because they've seen such an intimidating kind of um, a pre- presentation of those police that's a pretty, earlier that's in a the pretty, night? That's a pretty long... To make that assumption, though, that they're going to be feeling intimidated later on by some random person and not want to call the cops is a pretty big stretch, don't you think? Sure, maybe. But when you actually go to these events, and I think when you actually are chatting to people, women who aren't aren't, um, reporting sort of harassment and intimidation, when you look at working closely, as I do, with the LGBTIQ community and people's sense of how they feel connected with the police, the number one thing that I'll always remember at a community forum early on is this wonderful young woman who stood up and said, I really want there to be police around to help protect me if people are harassing or intimidating me, but can they be friendly police, police that smile at me when they walk past, not look at me like I've done something wrong? And I think that we need to recognise that there is a real... Um, damage that is done to the good police officers that are actually wanting to be there to help mm. and protect the community when we see these sort of intimidation programs put in place like sniffer dogs which are about very much um, a different type of agenda of policing that isn't about community protection and support is it is it that a program that you think could be easily implemented to be able to make police be more that kind of police look I think it's partly it's not the police officers I think partly it's about you know successive governments wanting to create a 
law and order agenda that uses the police force, if you like, as a, um, you know, it used to be a police service, it's now a police force. And over time, governments have made decisions to implement tough law and order approaches that actually allow them to look tough, which helps them win elections. Now, that's not necessarily the police is doing. That's about Mm. showing, you know, I'm doing a good job protecting you as this government. In some cases, that's really important and really key. But when we're looking at funding programs that we know don't work, like the Sniffer Dog program, where they actually are not delivering on what they're supposed to, questions has to be asked as to, well, why do we keep funding this? Mm, definitely. I couldn't agree more. I definitely don't see the point of them personally. But now, look, moving on to the music, the next song you got for us is Queens of the Stone Age, No One Knows, another cracker of a 90s rock song. I mean, this one, what is the story behind it? So I, this is the one that I will play on my headphones or uh, uh, loud if I'm in the car. Uh, I will play before a community event or a rally or a forum or something if I need to snap myself out of whatever I was doing <laughs> and get in the right zone. Uh, so, yeah, this is, you know, this is certainly the soundtrack that I will uh, be playing in my headphones before I get into a zone of whatever it is, if it's a rally or event or something. So it's a psych-up song. It's, it's a psych-up song. And, I, you know, it's really amazing. And, I you know, I, I saw Queens of the Stone Age live and I just, like, you know, I am truly, like, in this kind of music is really great. I really love it and it really gets me going.
listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is State Greens member for Newtown, Jenny Leong. Now, look, you're a relatively new mum. Being in politics, pretty intense job. I mean, how do you balance that? Yeah. Is it, I don't know if it's um if it's balance or or what it is. I am a relatively new mum. My daughter is um is almost 16 months old. Um Look, I think, you know, part of it is the, the end dis- discussion about balance and how you put all these things together. But I think there's a there's a couple of practical things that it's made me realise about what we need to do to make sure that we're supporting women to be able to remain doing the jobs that they were doing before they had children. And the first one is that we basically, you know, we need to be able to address the fact that we need flexible working conditions for everybody. Because mm. actually, in my case, I had very inflexible working conditions no one can backfill my job I I am the member for Newtown whether or not I'm at work or not um, and so in that sense I needed flexibility around me from my partner and from you know family members to be able to have the flexibility to step in and help so that I could keep doing my job um, the other part of it is that I'm really you know on one hand it's very difficult to do it while you're an MP because of the the time commitments and the fact that you can't have a backfill mm. but on the other side I'm incredibly privileged because MPs get paid a lot more money than lots of other people and actually getting paid extra money means that you can afford things like daycare, you can afford things to actually assist and support you being able to do what you're doing where so many other people struggle because they can't afford those things and that's a real real eye-opener for me was Mm. how um, challenging the space is around childcare and that kind of cost prohibit like how prohibitive the cost is but also just the logistics around it which really has a huge impact on women being able to return to work and how how quickly after giving birth did you go back to work so about three months after I sort of um went back into doing some bits and pieces and I tried to kind of keep it on a part-time basis but which doesn't really work as an MP because most of the time (laughs) you do you know most of the time you're doing evening and weekend things um you know, as I say, like when Parliament's not sitting, I have the somewhat of a flexible situation where I can actually say, oh, I can't do this or I can do that. Or if I'm, you know, if I haven't got something on in the afternoon, I have the luxury of being able to go pick my daughter up early and go home. I don't have to be there from nine to five. Mm-hmm. But it has meant that, you know, a lot of nights that you, you're doing things, um, you get very good at um, attending things for a very short period of time. Once upon a time, I'd always like get there early and speak and then be able to schmooze and chat with everybody afterwards. But obviously in the last little while, I haven't had that chance as much to do. Uh, the other thing that's really important is to have, you know, colleagues and, and people working with you that understand the need for that flexibility. And mm. I was very lucky to be um, supported by my Greens Lower House colleagues, uh, Jamie Parker and Tamara Smith, who are the members for Ballina and Balmain, and they really got it and they stepped in and helped whenever they could to be able to kind of make sure that they were doing the things that supporting me being able to do my job. But also, you know, the folks in the office make a huge difference because their approach to how they deal with it if you go well actually you know I can't do that because I've got to pick up some I've got to pick up my daughter from daycare or 
whatever it is, they become much more flexible about that. Those things are all crucial. I'm lucky because I'm the boss of my office. So many women struggle um, and so many people with children struggle because they're not the boss. And so I appreciate that while it's difficult, actually, there's lots about it that I have easy because of those, you know, benefits that I have being the local MP. And I mean, I guess like as well, the other thing that comes with it that I think is something we've noticed a, a couple of Greens pollies have done in the last um, couple of years is something as simple as breastfeeding in Parliament. And you've been yeah. like this I, I've had yeah, so I've been breastfeeding my bub now. Um, I'm still feeding her and um I fed her in the chamber. It did not cause the same chaos and drama as it did in the uh, federal or, parliament. I think thing? it's a great yeah. thing. I think you know, I think part of it is, you know, good on Larissa and I think clearly it need to you know, it needed to be put out there and you know, the circumstances of that just is wonderful to show mm. that breastfeeding is a very normal thing that has to happen and has to be, you know, supported. Um but I was really lucky, you know, the first time I brought my daughter into the chamber, it was completely fine. Everyone was okay with it. I didn't need any special permission or rules. Um, we've now got a um, family room put in place at the New South Wales Parliament so that there's actually a space that the bubs can hang out as well with their carers. So there's lots about that, you know. I, I remember the first time I fed her in the chamber and it was just sort of a complete non-event and then <laughs> mainly because I wanted to try and keep her to be quiet so that <laughs> the nice. person was speaking was wasn't distracted and um you know it just happened and that was the that was the end of it and I think that's that's wonderful and you know we should be we we've got to get across these hurdles and over mm. these hurdles so then they're just done and dusted um but if it makes women feel more comfortable about doing it in their workplace because we make we because it is publicly covered that women do it that's a great thing and I think Larissa certainly made that contribution well it definitely sounds like if nothing else things are progressing some way with the help of powerful women like yourself. Now look at moving on. Next song you got for us. All our Texas live in all our exes live in Texas, sorry, the devil's part. I mean, this is a bit of a change in pace. Uh, it's an absolute change in pace, and there's a there's a reason for it. So Hannah Cross from All Our Exes Live in Texas um, performed recently at what was the inaugural uh, event held by the New South Wales Parliamentary Friends of Live Music, and I'm pleased to be on the executive of that group. And it's a cross-party working group that actually is there to try and advance the interests of live music within the decisions made by the New South Wales government and to be friends of live music within the New South Wales Parliament. So I thought I'd pick this one because it was wonderful to see live music performed in the Parliament just next to the chamber where we all just basically hear men yelling at each other. They're mainly men, but, you know, yelling and screaming at each other in the place known as the Bear Pit. And instead to be standing in the Speaker's Garden and hearing this song performed was really wonderful. So I thought this is a nice, you know, a good connection to, to the parts of New South Wales Parliament that actually makes you feel good about it rather than the yelling and the screaming. So he came to me 
devil's part I could say I learned a lesson that I won't repeat again With every passing year I learned to bury sin But I'm older now Truth be told I've fallen right apart Now spend the last days burning paper through my heart Oh my darling You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is state member for the electorate of Newtown, politician Jenny Leong. Now, something pretty damn amazing that you did this year was um, you know you passed a historic motion through the New South Wales Lower House to support women's right to choose for safe and legal abortions. I mean, can you tell us about in this day and age just how important that is? It's hugely important and the biggest challenge we have about this, while it was wonderful to see the motion pass through, is that we still see abortion sitting in the Crimes Act in New South Wales. It is a completely shameful situation that we see and it's something that there has been a strong campaign uh, running to try and change. Uh, What happened in the New South Wales Parliament was the most bizarre aligning of different issues. So what occurred was we originally had a motion on the table condemning the Liberal Minister for Women who had said when she first became the Minister for Women that she personally um, was anti-choice or she had basically made words to those effects, putting it personally out there. Um, And so we had a motion condemning her, basically saying that as the Minister for Women, she needed to respect women's right to choose even whatever she does personally is her own personal choice. But as the Minister for Women, she needed to clarify her position that basically said that she respected a woman's right to access safe legal abortion. And so basically as this kind of motion went on and we were in on the floor of the, of the chamber, it became apparent that the Minister really wanted to get her name out of it and wanted to get her part out of it that was condemning her. And so um, it was actually my Greens colleague, Jamie Parker, who then amended it because we were in discussions and I couldn't speak again on the floor and he amended it to say, look, the New South Wales Parliament supports a woman's right to access safe, legal abortion and reproductive choices. I can't remember the exact wording, but basically what happened is because the Minister for Women was, I think, so keen to get her name out of the motion, then it just sort of beautifully passed and it passed on the voices, which means no one raised an objection. And we sat there and myself and my Greens colleagues and the Labor women who were sitting next to me all just looked in absolute um, shock and disbelief as we realised that we had passed this motion with very little, very little sort of planning or expectation through the chamber. And what it showed, I think, is two things. The motion itself doesn't change the law. The motion simply confirms um, that this, uh, you know, basically just passes that motion through the chamber. But what it does, and I think what was really powerful about it, is that it built on and it gave us a positive jumping board onto the next part of the campaign. So my Greens colleague, Dr. Maureen Faruqi, had tried to introduce legislation to remove abortion from the Crimes Act in the upper house. That, unfortunately, was not supported, and so it didn't pass. And so really the campaign was sitting on this base of having had a really negative response to then be able to say, well, actually, look at what just occurred through the lower house. This just passed. Demonstrates to say, well, actually, the sky didn't fall in 
No one had a complete panic or scandal about it. This has occurred. This is where public opinion is at now. The parliament needs to catch up. And I think it was a good way to sort of provide a bit of a boost to that campaign, which will continue until we see the the uh, Crimes Act changed. Do you think that there is any timeline on that that we can look forward to, uh, I guess? Look, I think the, the the timing has got to be considered in the context of the fact that we have Fred Nile sitting in the balance of power in mm. the Upper House in New South Wales who's not known for his progressive views when it comes to women's rights and equal rights for people. So um, that is something that needs to be factored in. But I would expect very much that this will be a key issue that we will be needing to push in the lead up to the next election, particularly because we know that on this issue, um, actually the Labor Party still allow a conscience vote. And so we need to be making sure that we're, it will be the Greens the ones that are actually pushing this through for this reform and change and relying on the others to hopefully support it. It's quite bizarre like that with the Labor Party, isn't it? Because, I mean, obviously it has a lot to do with their strong Catholic base, right? And, I mean, mm. like, like Luke Foley is, what would his position well, be? Well, Luke Foley was the uh, person that stopped the marriage amendments going through when they tried to introduce them in New South Wales. And mm. at the time when I was running as the, uh, he changed his mind and supported marriage equality uh, in the lead up to the state election when I was still running as the candidate for Newtown. And at the time it was reported as Luke Foley's immaculate conversion. <laughs> uh, basically because they were saying there was no chance that the Labor Party could beat us in Newtown if he hadn't changed his mind on marriage equality. I mean, all of that is so cynical. And mm. I think, the, to me, the biggest concern I have about a conscience vote is that those issues are a matter of conscience for the person facing them. Mm. So when it comes to who has the right to have a, a decision and look to their conscience on that, it should be the woman who finds themselves in that situation. And it's not for individual parliamentarians to be saying, based on their conscience, they will impose a view or a right on women or not. We should be actually recognising that this is about a woman's right to choose and the parliament should be doing everything we can to be able to provide people with access to the safe reproductive choices they need to be able to make the decision themselves. Totally. It really is just a human rights issue, really, isn't it? Now, look, uh, moving on to the music again, you've got the Motel's Total Control. Why this song? This song is one that I just, whenever I hear it, come on, I just can't, like... You know, I just love it. I love it. And I have a memory of riding riding on my bike down Wilson Street listening to it as a like regular favourite work song because I used to ride down um, from Newtown to Amnesty offices in Chippendale. And I always have a memory of riding it and thinking, riding while I'm listening to this song and having this wonderful thought of going, no one would be expecting that I would be listening to this good old song <laughs> while I was riding down. And I really love it. It's just one that I always makes me smile if I put it on, you know. And, and you have those kind of songs where you have no idea the first time you heard them you have no knowledge of when you first became aware of that song but it's something that always just resonates with you and this is one of them Stand there 
You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today has been Jenny Leong, a member for Newtown. We've been talking about a lot of red-hot issues for young people on this show, and we're going to talk about another one, and that is the lockout laws, because as the member for Newtown, it's something that's severely affected that area. I mean, what have your experiences been as the member for the area with complaints, with issues being raised, and how are you addressing that in Parliament? There's probably a few things that have occurred, and the first was the sort of initial panic of how many people were coming out uh, to Newtown when the lockout laws were imposed. And there was no denying that the increase in the amount of people attending venues, the queues outside venues, and the dynamic of the whole place changed significantly. Uh, we were seeing at the time, and I remember sort of early discussions I had with some of the licensees were saying that they were seeing the kinds of crowds that they would see in the peak of the Newtown summer but instead they'd see them they were seeing them in the middle of winter and so they were like this is really shifting and changing how we're seeing this this area at the time one of the things that was really key was actually looking at not um allowing the community to whip up into this sense of oh well we just want to extend the lockouts into our area and there was certainly residents that thought that that was the solution because they didn't want to be bearing the brunt of the problems um but very much my view had always been and the greens policy per- view had always been that, you know, imposing top-down lockouts on a community and not actually addressing the underlying causes never works. And so I worked really closely with um, lots of the local residents, the neighbourhood centre, the liquor accord, the local police, um, the local councils to actually try and pull a group together. And we started, which, you know, is an awkwardly named uh, group, but it's called the Newtown Vibe Roundtable. We couldn't (laughs) ever define what vibe was properly, but we all agreed that that captured what we wanted. And basically this was a way for all of the key stakeholders in the community to talk about how we could actually protect the things that we really loved about Newtown while at the same time not just shutting it down either by imposing lockouts or just wanting to put up borders to say we don't want anyone that doesn't live here to come in. Mm. And so we approached that in a number of ways. We looked at some of the transport solutions. There were some good initiatives done by the local bars to say how they would deal with, you know, um, some interesting measures around what time people could come in, basically saying that they wouldn't take new people after a certain time, but people would go out and in if they'd already been in the venue, looking at some of the issues around the responsible service of alcohol, but also creative things like the Newtown Neighbourhood Centre had these beautiful kind of like community events outside of their their um, centre with live music and welcoming people with, vi- with flowers and talking about what the Newtown vibe was as people were arriving. And so there are all these kind of measures that were put in place Place to try and say how can we actually address this locally rather than just having a top-down imposed mm. view. What we saw is that in actual fact, even though the numbers in Newtown increased significantly, we did not see the same rate of presentations at RPA emergency, which was what was happen- happening at St Vincent's. Yeah. And we also didn't see anywhere near the same level of alcohol-related violence or st- and that was based on the police's own stats. That's really interesting, isn't it? And I mean, have, has that been discussed much in Parliament in relation to what was going on in the cross and what lockouts being put in place in the cross like because that's quite an interesting sociological phenomenon I guess in many ways yeah well I know that there's certainly been interest from um, members of the government and ministers around what happened in Newtown and those initiatives they don't necessarily talk to me about that they have other avenues to be 
able to do it because, you know, they don't necessarily like to take the initiatives <laughs> from the Greens MP. But um, in that sense, there has been a really positive kind of shift. And what's great about it is it's also demonstrated to the government that actually there are really good ways to collaborate on these things across community mm. to be able to address some of those concerns. The thing that I think is key now, and I think this is the one bit that we haven't been able to solve and it's something that I really want to put um, effort into over the coming months, is actually to look at how we deal with the low-level harassment. So there's obviously not the same level of violence or aggression or antisocial behaviour that you were seeing in the cross, but anyone going out in Newtown now would agree that there is still a higher, you know, there is a higher amount of sexist sort of drunken comments or homophobic comments that are thrown across the street or, you know, as people are walking past. And those things are not something that you would necessarily ring and report to police, but mm. it's something that needs to be dealt with in terms of how safe people feel in their own community. Well, and so that's a challenge. It's definitely something that I'm sure you're working hard towards. Look, Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the other box today. It's almost up. We're almost out of time. We do have time for one last song, though. Next song you've got for us, Sarah Blasco, We Won't Run. Tell us the story behind this one for you. Yeah, well, I mean, Sarah is a local, local, but Sarah Blasco is someone that I've always had a, a huge amount of respect for. I've always loved her music and I always have a particular soft spot for this song because it was performed at a refugee rally that was a really big refugee rally that happened at Sydney Town Hall just before I was elected to be the member for Newtown. And I remember feeling really, really privileged to be able to speak at a rally that she was performing at. And so to me, it has special meaning because it's, it's, a, it's a locally made song, but also because it's done by an incredibly impressive female artist and someone that also is able to contribute to really important things like refugee rights. Amazing. Well, here it is. We Won't Run by Sarah Blasco. Big thanks to my producer, Nicole DiPaolo. Up next is lunch with Maya Billick. And uh, stick around for that one and I'll be back next week as always. See ya. Pages turning, lights are See what you could not see It's plain as the day The night makes you pay For what was hidden underneath Longing to leave But begging to feel That something will make you stay you Gotta believe that This all leads To somewhere we've never been We won't run We can fight